Good evening, everyone. So happy to see you here this evening. It's um, a great pleasure to welcome Thomas Glave back to Baltimore and the Pratt Library. I think that this is your fourth time here. Um, so you know that we consider him a good friend. Um, since its publication this summer, Thomas' new book, Among the Blood People, Politics and Flesh, has received numerous rave reviews, including a starred and boxed review in Publishers Weekly. That's what every author um, is always longing for. Um, Danny Hoey, writing in Lambda Literary, called Among the Blood People, and I'll quote, a powerful collection of essays that both frightens and inspires. It's a collection that will leave you with chills, and you will return to it not only for its sheer beauty, but also for its raw honesty, pain, and passion, end quote. Thomas Glave has won an O'Henry Award and two Lambda Literary Awards for his writing. His books include Whose Song and Other Stories, Words to Our Now, and The Torturer's Wife, he edited the anthology, Our Caribbean, a gathering of lesbians and gay writing, of lesbian and gay writing from the Antilles. He has been the MLK visiting professor at MIT and a visiting fellow at Clare Hall, University of Cambridge. He is professor of English at SUNY Binghamton. In his introduction to Among the Blood People, Yusef Komenyaka begins by saying, and I quote, there are few voices as urgent as Thomas Glaive's. So ladies and gentlemen, you're privileged this evening to hear this urgent voice. Wonderful, thank you. I just did a little um, funny thing. It's nice, it's really nice to be back, hi Michael, to be back and to be here at the Enid Pratt Library for this book in particular. As Judy said, I feel really like uh, this is home. And uh, this is, I, I think indeed, Judy, you're right, my fourth visit to the Pratt. And um, what I was going to do, actually, what I'm going to do is uh, read from uh, something from the book itself, from Among the Blood People. And then I was going to read from something entirely new. This is actually the manuscript that's uh, still, I'm still editing, that I rarely do, I rarely read from things in progress. But the piece from which I would read, I think, is maybe in some ways um, related to what I'm going to read tonight from Among the Blood People. So uh, this book is, as Judy said, it's a book of essays. There are uh, 16 essays in the book and one piece that calls itself a not poem. So I'm going to just read first from uh, a piece titled The Blood People and the Language that uh, I wrote, um, gosh, I think um, all of the essays were written fairly recently. This piece uh, came about from um, some, um, as you'll hear in the later piece, if I get to that, from the manuscript, uh, some very kind of difficult time in 2011, some family uh, difficulties that I had to deal with and I'm still dealing with actually on a day-to-day -day basis. And I realized that uh, in the face of some people's mortality and vulnerability, physical vulnerability, and, and all the death that had happened in the family in the United States, uh, as opposed to people in Jamaica, that I 
felt really compelled to write something to talk about that and also just some of the Jamaican realities. So this is uh, excerpts from The Blood People and the Language. It is something to know that you so dearly and even desperately love a country in which you know that you are not, in fact, safe. No matter the seductiveness of your illusions, no matter your desire for safety, actual safety itself, whatever it is and wherever one finds it, being finally maybe simply the assurance of love. Or for faith. Such love or faith or desire is not quite a choice, but simply a way of being, foolhardy in this context, perhaps. A way of being that beats insistently through your pathetic, vulnerable heart and is somehow enduringly there. It is something to know that the place that provides you with such indescribable joy in your heart, yes, in your very deepest heart, upon arriving in that place, Jamaica, in this present day, at the same airport where you arrived as a child over and over again, and where, far beyond that airport, in the hills of cooler, greener, upper, upper St. Andrew, above Kingston, you spent time as a child, in a place that, no matter how much you love it, you know could destroy you, as, indeed, could several other places. For where, finally, is safety? I've never quite fully known. Only a very stupid or self-deceiving black man, and in my case, also a homosexual with clearly not white skin, living in the United States or in many other places, would believe that he is in any way safe. What we can know is that safety is, in this fraught world, as elusive as shadows at dusk, glimpsed for a moment, then gone, then maybe returned at some future point, but not, I suspect, for long. Some children, often the most vulnerable among us, know this. Some people in besieged places, whether nation or domestic sphere, seeking safety for themselves and their children, know this. In my smaller circumstances, I can hope that some kind of safety resides maybe in particular memories, maybe in language that brings back both substance and occasionally remembered form and flesh of those both living and dead. And so if people with whom you are close have begun to die or sicken to some extent, the dying or sickening occasioning in you feelings of longing and loneliness and also fear. And if you are me or someone like me, like so many of us, you might begin to court the dead, to have conversations and then maybe longer conversations with the dead. If you are the descendant of African slaves, as I am and as so many of us are, this is something that you may not be able to do without eventually losing your mind. Acknowledging the enormity of the history and experience. If you are the descendant of African slaves, as so many of us are, and as I am, you will know that acknowledging the enormity of that history and experience, this is eventually something that you will probably have to do, hopefully without risk of losing your mind. Peace and ancestors, you might think, as I've often thought. For in the journey of engaging with the dead, you must, I have learned and still am learning, you must move yourself towards some conceptualization of peace and some squaring with ancestors, which, given one's history as a person of African descent, may bring anything but peace. 
You feel them around you sometimes, those ancestral dead. You know that they are there. Of course, you hear them in the daily Jamaican language that brings them back to you. But you also dream of them, ruminate about them, wonder what, for those whom you didn't actually know, wonder what their faces looked like. You wonder even what the face of your paternal great-great-grandfather, Stephen Sharp Glaive, looked like. A white man born in Life, North Riding, Yorkshire, England, who emigrated to Jamaica from England in the early 19th century and died in Jamaica in the parish of Manchester in 1873, and whose gravestone you saw not far from the town of Mile Gully in the churchyard of the now deconsecrated, supposedly haunted Anglican church, the Duppy Church. That church was originally St. George's Church, where, in the late 19th century, Stephen served on the church committee and at some point also as one of the church's wardens. And it was very moving, you remember, and deeply strange to see your surname on a worn, weather-beaten, 19th-century gravestone, knowing that, in addition to sharing that name, some DNA of the man buried in that ground moved in the present through your living body. You wonder about the brown woman, Catherine Kitty Wright, your paternal great-great-grandmother, Was her gravestone among those more unreadable in the weed-choked churchyard? Where did her bones lie, the bones of the woman whom Stephen did not marry and who bore him several children, among them an earlier Thomas Glaive? The very accurate family genealogy shows us that there had already been several Thomases in the Glaive line, going as far back as the 1740s in England. Stephen and Kitty's son Thomas was your great-grandfather, born in 1839 in Whitby, parish of Manchester, Jamaica, and deceased there in 1901. The Thomas who fathered your grandfather, Caleb Glaive, and the Thomas for whom your father, that Thomas's grandson, was presumably named Thomas Glaive Sr. But then who is that brown woman, Catherine Kitty, whom Stephen Sharp Glaive, for whatever reason, did not marry, although she obviously shared his bed, or at least bore him children. How did she live? How did she live, Catherine, the great-great-grandmother, her skin marking her and the post-slave colony as most definitely not white, a person virtually without rights or claim of her own, a woman ancestor who had lived through the late slave era in Jamaica and into the time of emancipation, How did she live with and bear children for a man who stipulated in his will that, as we have known definitively since the early years of this century, any of his children who married a, quote, black person, unquote, would be disinherited? And indeed, the language from the will, as I quote here in one of the notes, states directly from uh, from Stephen's uh, own text. With regard to this, te- to this testamentary stipulation, the exact language of Stephen Sharp Glaive's will, dated February 25th, 1873, and probated in Manchester Parish, Jamaica, reads as follows, quote, I also will and declare that should any of my children marry to any black person, all bequests in this will shall be cancelled and be null and void, as also if any should marry contrary to the wishes of my executor and executrix, unquote. And of course, Stephen is using the definition of black that was still used in Jamaica, meaning dark-skinned as opposed to brown, as Catherine would have been. 
He made good on this threat, Stephen did, with one of his progeny, leaving her only a mule. A resounding brava to that daughter, one Maria Glave, who, born in Whitby, Manchester in 1840, married one evidently black, Lionel de Silva Enriquez, thus daring to buck her intransigent, and as we would say in this modern century, bigoted father. How did she live? How did she die? I would like to know her face and her voice and the sound of her 19th century brown woman Jamaican language. I would like to know her life as much as I would like to know that of the man whose property, in a sense, she became after emancipation. Catherine, the lives of these great-great-grandparents and the lives of all those who followed, as much as I would like to know the lives and faces of all the Thomas Glaves who preceded me over the past 250 years and others, they are there in my imagination and historical memory. They are most certainly there. At certain times, Times like this one, when your mother has recently had a massive stroke and you are feeling extremely overwhelmed and very alone, alone and often really frightened, frightened when you wonder what will happen next, what can happen next, and how you will get through all of it without actually losing your mind, without losing your mind. At times, yes, like this, you do wish very much, yearn very much for a brother, an older brother, an experienced one, one who, in the face of trials and great anxiety, would always invariably be confident, that brother, the one who, like your dead sister, would seem always to know everything, the one who would always have a reasonable, if sometimes acerbic, even unkind and condescending, as was often the case with her, response for everything, the one who, if he actually existed, would surely, in this idealistic imagining, have broad shoulders to rely upon and a deep, resonant voice to match the frequent smile on his face. The smile that, like the calming assurance in his so confident voice, would have said to you on numerous occasions, without being authoritarian and with steadfast good humor, yeah, 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 man, as a Jamaican would say, all right, then, no worry, no but a worry, that one. The brother about whom you have often dreamt. An older brother, although a younger one would be welcome. The older brother of whom, as you listen hungrily to the sounds of your parents and other blood people in the daily Jamaican language, and you hear them, you would ask, and so how is mother doing today? Did you visit her? Does she seem depressed? Is she responding to the speech therapy? Is she forming entire sentences yet? Are they actually giving her anti-anxiety medication? Is she making any friends there? Will you go to the facility today or tomorrow? Should I go there today or tomorrow? How are you holding up? How you do? You know that I love you, don't you? And, oh, yes, you would tell him, that brother. Remember, remember that. Remember how much, how very much, how much I love you, how much I love you dearly, and how we will. We will get through this together, brother. Yes, of course we will, because the older people will die. And some of the younger people may die also, as our sister did. And as we, who knows, who can possibly know, we may die sooner than we think. But we will, beloved brother, whose voice and presence I also hear in the language, we will get through it all. Trust me on that one. Believe me. Yes, man. All right. But he... That beloved but imagined and fictitious brother about whom you have dreamt and for whom you have yearned for years upon years since, if not before, your sister's untimely death does not breathe air, at least not the air of this planet. 
And so, because he doesn't exist and has never existed, you know, you know that you will have to move through this landscape alone. Move at times with the support of friends who are loving, yes, but whom you know also do as they should have their own lives, their own responsibilities, as he, your imagined brother, no doubt would have had his own. But responsibilities and life of his own, though he would have had, he would have been one of your blood people, and hopefully one of the kind ones, unlike those in Jamaica, not pleased with your most profound pleasure and yearning with your longings for other men. Ideally, whatever your imagined brother's erotic inclinations, he would not have reacted to you in as cold a manner as many of the other blood people have done. Ideally, you and he would not have been enemies, not irritable and sarcastic in each other's presence, but friends, dear friends. But you do not have a brother who is either a friend or an enemy, except in the place for which at times like this one, with your mother lying in a facility because of a stroke that has reduced her to an invalid, you are deeply grateful. That place, your imagination. Okay, so that was from The Blood People and the Language. And I'll just read, I think, a brief section from one other piece in this book and then read something from the manuscript. Um, actually, from the piece called Toward a Queer Prayer. Um, if you have the book, it begins on page 51. This essay was actually written as a talk uh, for a conference, a human rights conference in Oslo, um, the Oslo Freedom Forum, the photograph of me at that conference uh, is on the back of the book. And I went to this conference. I was invited to go there in 2011 to speak about Jamaica and what was happening with the LGBTQ population there and my own activism in Jamaica um, over the last 12, 13, 14, 15 years. And I really didn't know in the face of all the things that people were saying, decimations and burning villages and mass rapes and extrajudicial executions and all kinds of horrific things. I didn't really know what I could say, not to equal that, certainly, but what would I say that would interest anyone, I thought. But they invited me, I had to say something. And so um, the night before I had to get up there and speak with everyone, I, I wrote this brief piece that I call Toward a Queer Prayer. Today, or on another day, perhaps not so different from this one, a day of light and birds and even laughter, genuine laughter, Another faggot in Jamaica will perhaps scream or not as someone moves to burn down his home with him inside it or tries to rip open his bowels with a machete as he, that faggot, picture his watching eyes, watching, picture his open or just closed mouth, sometimes waiting. He, that faggot, is perhaps momentarily distracted by looking at the sea, at our gorgeous blue-green Caribbean sea, he, the faggot, pondering waves there, pondering color and light and birds, and for possibly more than this moment, not dwelling, no, not at all, on how much his body and his flesh and his very breath are all still so hated, hated, hated in Jamaica. For this moment, as he ponders that beckoning water into which scores of his enslaved ancestors leapt off ships to their deaths 300 years before, he unremembers the fact that this country, for the most part, has never cared for him, that its motto, out of many, one people, seems astonishingly not ever, not even after his death, to include him, 
and that, in fact, one of the nation's proudest patriots in the name of God and nation or simply in the spirit of fear and outrage might, even on this day of light and birds and color, already be dreaming either of eviscerating him or burning him alive or both. Such dreams of annihilation that lead to fearsome acts should come as no surprise in the Jamaica many of us know and love in spite of the fact that this Jamaica, the same one that venomously calls some of its male citizens faggots or batty men and calls some of its female and male citizens sodomites, would just as soon slice open faggots' throats as see them, me, us, hanged from someone's mango tree. It should come as no surprise that somewhere on a day not so different from this one, some lesbian bitch, as one has sometimes heard those people referred to in Jamaica, or a woman perceived to be a lesbian, is raped and perhaps murdered, maybe eviscerated. Yes, for that is what she deserves, isn't it? Because a woman should be a woman, goddammit, and not aim to be like a Ross-Clot man, not true? She, the bitch, should know her damn-blasted place, not true? Know her place, even though some of us say that we are not in Jamaica, like South Africa. We do not have corrective rape here. We are not ignorant and dirty like those whom some of us would consider disgusting black Africans, even though many of us, if not most of us, are also black. And lesbian bitches and faggots in Jamaica should know their place because this kind of carrying on, this faggotness and lesbianness and simple filthy perversion is pure wickedness, nastiness, Filthiness. It is an abomination, so it has been said. It is a sickness, a white people ting, a satanic ting, a ting we cannot bear in Odyssey, country, massa, God, so annihilate the Batman them, the Sodomite them. So many have indeed thought and on occasion shouted, and so many have believed and believe still, yes, by God, by Jesus, his son on the cross, it must be done. And if at least some of the nasty people are annihilated or exorcised or both, and if enough eyes and backs are turned away when the police or others torture them, people will dance and chair and sing in the streets, won't they? Many people will, won't they? Yes, of course. For isn't that what some people did when, not so many years ago now, one of Jamaica's most famous faggots, and one who helped to found that nasty man organization, the Jamaica Forum for Lesbians, All Sexuals, and Gays, JFLAG, was killed. Brian Williamson, chopped up with a machete, someone chopped him. Carved up with an ice pick, someone carved him. Brian, remember him? His insides were ripped open by metal, gripped in a pair of angry hands. Upon announcement of his death that June 2004 morning, People who happened to be out on the road where he lived began dancing, dancing in that narrow Kingston Road, dancing for joy outside Brian's home as his still warm corpse was carried out of his house by those whose work it is to do such things. And many people who were watching on that lovely day, not unlike this one, danced and even sang the song, that so famous, that so infamous song, the Annihilation Anthem by Buju Banton, Boom Bye Bye in a Batty Boy Head, Rubai not promote the nasty man, the mafia dead. Yes, kill faggots, yes, kill them, they should all be killed, because that is what we deserve, many people in Jamaica still believe, because that is what faggots are, many people in Jamaica and throughout the world still believe, unpersons, not people, things. 
And so perhaps all those years ago, the small group of us who founded JFLAG had already had enough of our thingness or had decided to pay it no attention and move on. Perhaps we had had enough of faggots' body parts tossed into ravines for mangy dogs to sniff and consume, and policemen's batons cracked into our skulls, either before or after those batons had been shoved up our asses, then down our throats. Perhaps we decided that it might be better to face head-on the possibility of being chopped up instead of living always in fear of being chopped up. I remember that one of us, who departed the group soon after our first meeting, asked us with great concern in regard to the danger of the work to come, quote, But if you were a Jew in Nazi Germany, would you go about stating loudly that you were a Jew? Unquote. That was the exact question, and so many years later I can still see his face staring. Wondering. None of us could say what Jews would have done. And however one felt about his question, the fact that he had felt the emotion that had motivated it was significant. I replied, quote, But what else can we do? What else is there to do now? Unquote. And so, possibly, possibly, we went forth and went forth again, and all these years later, although the founding group has dispersed, the organization lives on, and only one of the founders, Brian, has been murdered. And many more lesbians and gay men and some transgendered people have found in JFLAG a place in Jamaica that they can call home of a kind, a place that they can call their own, a place where on a day not so different from this one or one exactly like it, they can sit down recalling at some point the beauty of our gorgeous blue-green Caribbean and actually touch the miracle of their own living flesh and say or think, but yes, I exist, I'm alive, hair, and that is a good thing alive hair where at least for now no one will try to toss acid upon me or spit in my face and call me an abomination or cut off my hands and hate me because in me they see nothing but filth just sickening filth not hair where I can be alive where I can have flesh a face and my own hands and Jamaica has had to contend with us is contending contending even though for the moment it has rarely seen our faces. For to show our faces without great caution in Jamaica, even now, perhaps especially now, just might bring death in some quarters, in many quarters, just might bring fire and kerosene and machetes, and then people dancing on a road somewhere. But Jamaica knows more than ever now that we are there. It knows more than ever now our beloved but often cruel country, that it may kill some of us, but by no means all. It cannot murder all of the women. It cannot annihilate every single man. The prime minister knows it. Jamaica's parliament knows it. Fire and machetes, but also resistance. Everyone knows it. Ultimately, perhaps I really wanted to help form JFLAG because of him, because of that little faggot, sitting there, broken-fingered and partly burned, in a dark corner of my most lonely, most intimate imagination, a corner of exile and sometimes death, sitting there, that little mincing, lisping, despicable faggot who should have been shot dead in his youth, who should have been raped, who was raped, who should have been beaten and was beaten constantly, that sickening little faggot with the two large eyes and the swaying hips who might have been me or so many others, who was me and is and will be many others. It is for him and for all the others, the women, the men,
the mannish women and the womanish men and all those yet to come, that we walked toward great fear and uncertainty in JFLAG, but also toward the power of liberation, freedom. There is something in the pursuit of liberation that feels exactly like, I think, that is, I think, prayer. Let these words then, and a part of this day, become a kind of prayer for all of them, for us, and also for the dead. A prayer with open hands and heart offered up for the living and the dead. A prayer that already knows that the time is coming, will come, when a faggot or sodomite might walk alongside our beautiful Caribbean, thinking of nothing, nothing whatsoever but water, waves, silence. Someone who, just walking on a day not so different from this one, will gradually turn his or her face up to the sky and think, but yes, here, alive, where I am, where I can be, alive. Okay. Um, all right, now I'll just finish with um, something new. and I've never read this before, even to myself, actually out loud that is, so uh, bear with me if I have any stumbles in the road. This will just be a couple of minutes. This is um, a manuscript that I um, worked on last year when I was in, living in Cambridge, England, and at the university there. And um, I wanted to write about the experience of being there in that place, in that very rarefied place, some of which is recounted also in Among the Blood People. But I also wanted to think about... Um, a kind of light motif of this thing that was happening in the family simultaneously for which I was responsible at the same time in terms of my mother's care and all of the mm, all of the um, demands that went along with that and um, and so it's written in epistolary form to um, well it doesn't matter to whom but um, anyway this is one segment of it I'll just read a few pages of this and see how this goes and then if you like we can have Q&A discussion after this. So all the parts, by the way, for what it's worth, at this point anyway, in manuscript that are about my mother directly are in um, italics. But now I'm drawing down a veil over these words, hoping that I will not feel too exposed in writing even to you. To you, who always knows everything in advance, as I tell you that while the preceding part of this letter was written to you on May 19th, today is May 23rd. And I finally summon the courage to let you know that the thing I feared the most and about which I had the most anxiety, seeing our mother, has already happened. I saw our mother twice since landing in New York on May 19th. Twice I saw her, and it was not nearly as painful or frightening or lacerating as I feared it was going to be. And you know how very easily it could have been all of those things. For as we know, things happened to her in 2011 that not even you could prevent though I know that you tried. But the stroke that felled and disabled her in April of 2011, and which has her now mainly confined to a wheelchair, no one could have prevented. For we tried all of a piece, didn't we, over and over again? Tried to get her to stop drinking. Tried to get her to face the danger of drinking so much while taking high blood pressure medication and Coumadin, which her doctor finally had to remove from her list of prescriptions, because mother simply would not, could not listen, would not, could not stop drinking. 
You will remember, of course, when her doctor, the gerontologist, tried in 2010 to get me to talk with her about ceasing driving because mother, in her typically obstinate and unlistening way, would not stop driving her car, refused to listen to anyone's suggestions in regard to her own safety and health and the safety of others, and her judgment for both driving and some other things was clearly impaired because of dementia, the doctor said, so that she might easily cause an accident, the doctor said, and would that not be awful if she went out there at the age of 86? and killed someone, a child, killed herself. It would be awful if she killed anyone, I said, but oh, I will try, I said, really, I will try. And then one evening, actually, February 3rd, 2010, for yes, I kept notes about it, as I did about everything, one of our aunts and I went over there to mother's house and tried to reason with her about the driving to say something gently like, will you please consider ceasing driving? Will you consider making this change for your own good and the good of others? And as one would expect, Though we spoke with her calmly, she screamed at us, and I mean screamed. You know how she is, or at any rate, how she used to be, pre-stroke. She became pretty much, or no, in fact, she was extremely hysterical and shut down all possibility of conversation, any chance of communication, screaming and insisting that we, and I in particular, were trying to curtail her rights, close off corridors in her life. I'm not in my dotage, she screamed to the point that the aunt and I feared she might burst a blood vessel right then and there in her cluttered living room that living room overrun with roaches crawling through the wall-to-wall carpeting and all around and through the sofa, that living room stinking of the cat's litter box. Why are you trying to come in here and rule and overrule me, she screamed, as well as a lot of, that woman, I hate that woman, meaning her gerontologist, the doctor who still sees her post-stroke for periodical checkups and who was actually very supportive during the entire time. And you will remember how furious I became with that doctor at one point in 2010 when she told me that I should either just take away mother's car keys or tell mother that she was not going to drive anymore, period. But you just don't understand Jamaican culture, I told the doctor, a South Asian woman. You don't understand our culture, and I'm trying to get you to try. We Jamaicans, and by extension, many of us from the Anglophone Caribbean, and for all I know, the Francophone and Dutch Caribbean as well, we don't deal with our parents like that. We're not like Americans or British people or others who feel it's okay to talk back to our parents and tell them what to do. The culture doesn't operate like that. So I do wish that you could be more sensitive to our culture. I do wish that you could stop telling me to do things that are simply not possible for me to do and to do them as if they're just a snap, one, two, three, tell your mother to do this, tell her to do that. There was nothing that even an angel could have done. No one. Angels are not infallible. They are not God. They wield nowhere near the apocalyptic power in which so many people seem to continue to need so foolishly to believe. Yes, and so I could do nothing, and our aunt, who had passed away 17 months later, could do nothing. We let things rest, we let them ride, but nothing was easy. It was all mostly extremely uneasy. For not only was Mother's house extremely cluttered, oh, but actually past cluttered, for she was a hoarder, wasn't she? Let's admit it, we all know it now. She was an extreme hoarder, as was our aunt, as we now understand such a condition of living to be, hoarding. Not only was Mother's house absolutely filthy and reeking and cluttered and hoarding-bound, indescribable, actually, to anyone who hadn't seen it and couldn't imagine it, it was so bad that, as I used to joke, I felt that navigating the rooms of that house, if one could actually manage to navigate them, required the skill of dancing George Balanchine's intricate, twisty ballet agon. Now step over this, now step around that, now wrap your leg around this and lean backward, etc., The massive hoarding and stench and filth have since all been cleaned up, of course, since she had the stroke and all of that, the remorseless cleaning, de-infesting, renovating, reordering, and all of it. 
And my God, I think sometimes, how on earth did I get through it? That summer and fall of cleaning, reordering, refashioning, it was epic, as you know. It was an epic adventure about which I am sure I will write someday. Indeed, I will have to write someday. But thinking now about doing that work in future, that gut-scraping work deep into the heart and the marrow, that writing does not in any way make me happy. I think that it frightens me, actually. But in the meantime, before all that, you will remember how I begged the doctor, why don't you talk to her? Why don't you compel her to stop driving and to stop drinking? Why? Well, because you're a medical officer, that's why. Can't you use your authority? Can't you command her? How naive that was of me. But that doctor, with whom I've been in touch a great deal since the stroke, made it clear that since then, that made it clear then that she had tried to warn mother and had failed because, as always, mother was, though the doctor never used this word, obstinate. Mother was going to do whatever she wanted to do in spite of what other people felt was best or safest or wisest for her, all things considered. And so it was that the stroke occurred. The cardiologist and gerontologist believe because they had to remove Coumadin from her prescriptions since she would not stop drinking and had also become inconsistent with her medications and certainly would not allow anyone to administer her medications. No, no, never. And she had already had several dangerous episodes because of her misuse and mishandling of the Coumadin. They were episodes that landed her in the hospital each time and frightened us all terribly. Remember that when I was living in the other Cambridge in Massachusetts in the spring of 2009, she was in the hospital several times. And remember how at one point that spring, when virtually about to board a plane in San Francisco to travel to a conference in St. Louis, doctors called me to say that she was in the emergency room of that North Bronx hospital and that I should try to get home as quickly as possible because she might not have long to go. She was intubated, swollen and puffy and heavily sedated when... In a highly advanced state of agitation, though quietly kept, because I didn't wish to further upset anyone else, including our relatives waiting for her in the hospital, I arrived there after managing to change my flight, got back to the East Coast as quickly as possible. Yes, yes, absolute hell, perhaps. No other way to describe it, perhaps. And all because she was becoming increasingly unreliable with her medications. And what we know, above all, is this, that if she had been able to continue taking the Coumadin, she very likely would not have had the stroke. But, well, well... Well, well. Do you remember how I used to say to people that if she continued drinking at her age and died suddenly of a heart attack or some other sudden attack while out in her garden, that enormous garden, doing that gardening work that she loved, I wouldn't have minded, so to speak. Well, of course I would have minded. I wanted, I I would no doubt have been devastated in spite of the deeply difficult history that she and I share. But her death would have been sudden, I thought back then, and she would have died doing what she truly loved doing. No suffering, no lingering, just death, quick, simple, unexpected, like the death of the elderly woman with whom I was staying in Holt Pastures in Jamaica in 1995, whom whom I came home to discover dead, naked, and in a posture of complete surprise, her eyes still open from a sudden fall in her bathtub, the back of her head crushed in. That discovery was unsettling, to say the least, but that woman died immediately, no lingering. If mother had died similarly, I would have, I could have, I hope, found a way to live with that, knowing that she had not suffered. And so, there we were, she and I, a few days ago, back in the house on Baychester Avenue, northeast Bronx. There we were, looking at each other. At points, I found myself marveling at how smooth her skin still looks, still looked for a woman in her late 80s. She remains immobile on her right side, but she has managed to get along with her left, learning how to feed herself, for example, and do other things. And, of course, she is administered to by the home attendants. And it actually was 
all right. It was all right because she was not, in fact, miserable and did not look to be. She was not, in truth, despairing or lonely or feeling isolated, at least not as far as I could tell. I asked her, I asked, how do you feel about this situation? I asked her slowly and clearly. Speak speak slowly and clearly, they said, the doctors, the nurses. For the aphasia that she has had since the stroke has, of course, made it all the more difficult for her to understand things that people say unless they are said carefully, clearly, slowly, Without a great deal of nuance or subtlety, the simpler the sentence, the better, the speech therapist told us. How do you feel about living like this? I asked her a few times. Meaning, how do you feel about having these people, the live-in home health care aides, one of whom has known our family for ages, is actually a distant relative. How do you feel having them taking care of you in your home? How do you feel having to spend so much time in this wheelchair Though the post-stroke therapy that you received in the rehab center and nursing home over seven months last year did help you regain some walking skills, though now you will always need support, how do you feel about not being able to travel the world as you once did and loved to do? For she was an adventurous, wasn't she? She and our aunt traveled to all corners of the world, China in the early 1980s, when the, current, when the country was just opening to Western tourism, China, Brazil, many places. I would not ask things like, how do you feel about not being able to drink anymore, and especially drink all day? I would not ask questions like, how do you feel with our aunt no longer here, your best friend whom you also hated? How are you managing? Even though, as you also remember, mother was essentially, as I said, vicious always to Aunt Phil, although she clearly loved her. How to begin to even start describing the torrents of abuse that she heaped upon our aunt year after year, decade after decade, the insults, taunts, critiques, and just plain nasty words constantly, the cruelty. It is not possible to begin describing that awfulness, at least not here, though I may someday do so elsewhere. Thank you. Thanks. Oh. Sorry if I read a little quickly. I, um, as I said, I'd never read, I've never read this before, so that was um, a little bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, so this, this what I, uh, yeah, as you can see, I think to some, the pages aren't even numbered in this manuscript. As you can see, um, this is related a little bit to the blood people and the language and to some other things in among the blood people, and um, so. among the blood people itself has some essays that came from later in the year in Cambridge when I was, um, if, if you know what that environment is like, it's, it's an extremely exalted one, and in some ways very surreal, particularly to someone I think who I would like to think has somewhat um, progressive, maybe even radical politics, and, and uh, also has a... Um, a colonial relationship with England and is black, like me, and homo. So there were lots of things in that kind of crucible being there that at one point I thought, how odd this is that I'm here in this place in England, which is, as someone said to me, this is actually not England, it's Oxbridge, which is an entirely different kind of England, and of course British people themselves have all kinds of baggage about it. Well, I learned actually during the year that there was a kind of intimacy that I had with England and with Oxbridge even as uh, people in my, some uncles of mine have gone to Oxford as Rhodes Scholars. I had not been there, but I had a kind of cousinship with um, imagination, um, imaginatively speaking, with that place, as they call it the other place, being in, in, the, in the city of Cambridge and at the university. And I began to think about some of the colonial vestiges and the echoes that um, 
still, I think, speak very much in my body. And things like my great-great-grandfather, my great-great-grandmother, the people whose records we're fortunate to have, uh, wills and so on and so forth. And how, in some ways, all these years of going to the UK finally began to make sense when I realized that there were reasons why, when I was there, when I'm there now, certain things make sense to me culturally, like why they stack cans in triangles and windows and why they call cans tins, and why they call bins bins, and so on and so forth, right? All these things that I'd heard growing up in a, in a post-colonial uh, society with connections in the, in the U.S. as well. So um, some, of that, some of that, those reflections, I guess, went into Among the Blood People and thinking about um, what it was like to, to be in that place, but also to be in Jamaica and then to be here as well and, and to have a black homosexual body. I mean, just, I'll just say briefly in conclusion, too, that uh, if any of you have any questions, that, you know, I, I talked about blackness in Jamaica, and actually it was a startling fact for me to learn that um, I, like many people of African descent in this country, right, uh, would be considered brown in Jamaica, not black, right, because of skin color, brown, right? So blackness, although black people are the majority of the country in Jamaica, and the uh, majority of the country is also poor people, so that means that the majority are poor black people, and mainly poor black women. The women are the majority in the country as well, as they are in the world. So there is a, that was a kind of a, a jarring political fact for me, because the word black means something very different in this country. I mean, over time, right? Uh, politically and so on. But in Jamaica, it can still be an insult as well to call someone black. Right, so there was this baggage mixing in as well, and dealing with this also in my genealogy, and the history, and the strangeness of of knowing that uh, the Anglican Church has factored so importantly in my family's life over hundreds of years, and in the 20th century and the 21st century as well. Most of us are still Anglicans, Church of England. So when I was in Cambridge and I went to Evensong services in some of the college chapels, which was High Anglican Church, it didn't quite work. It wasn't the same kind of um, it wasn't the same kind of intimate, more informal Anglicanism that I experienced in Jamaica, and there were other reasons why it didn't work. But um, anyway, this kind of transatlantic connection is something that I think I'm working on in this next manuscript, and was trying to work through a little bit in in this book as well. Um, Judy had actually asked me if I might read from Among the Blood People, and um, I was a little reluctant because it's uh, very personal, obviously, and. I tend not to disclose personal things about myself very much, but um, or swear and, and so on and so forth. Anglicanism, once again. But, um, but I think that in some ways, I mean, I don't know if anybody has any comments about this or questions, but this book um, was a kind of step into a different territory for me by way of more personal disclosure, while trying to also link political realities and geopolitical, social, historical realities to my own um, history. And just finally, to, to think about the fact that in Jamaica, uh, what I didn't say, I don't think I said it in that essay, but one of the very striking things, if you visit that church where my great-great-grandfather was a warden in the 19th century, um, Stephen went there. This was a church. Stephen had a lot of money. He, he was a, a, the younger son of the youngest son, I think, of a Yorkshire gardener, I think we found out. And, but he was not an, an aristocrat, as many people who went to the colonies weren't, or they were often the younger, impoverished sons and daughters and so on. And that church, St. George's Church, as it was known in 1873 and earlier, is this big, huge building in the middle of nowhere. 
now. It's not part of the National Trust in Jamaica, although I hope it will be at some point. But the road that leads to St. George's Church, which is covered with weeds and so on now, is lined with stones piled about maybe two and a half to three feet high, and that road was built, those stones were put there by slaves, right, um, in the 18th century, I think, because the church actually dates, I think, from 1795 or something like that. And um, just in terms of those vestiges of slavery, Jamaica and many other parts of the Caribbean, as we know, Latin America also, have many actual material vestiges of, of, of the slave trade and of slave reality, right? So that there are uh, roads like this one made by slaves. You can go to the Institute of Jamaica and you'll find actual slave chains, manacles that I put on my wrist. I knew somebody who worked there who let me do this. Um, and I didn't do it for a fetish. It was a very serious purpose I, I did this. And, um, and, and many other vestiges of slavery that I think have been in some ways, to some degree in this country, maybe more erased partly because of the uh, predilection for building shopping malls over Native American grounds and things like that. So, but in the Caribbean, you'll still find a lot of this. So to actually have that visceral connection with slavery in, that, that I could actually see, I mean, seeing Stephen's um, gravestone in the, in the churchyard was one moving experience, although he would have arrived in Jamaica after emancipation when the, when the, the British slave trade was actually abolished in 1807 and by emancipation time. The slave trade was outlawed in the colony. Slavery was outlawed in the colony, although people were still living in slavery conditions until well into the 20th century. You know. So um, it's, it's fascinating to me just to see that, to have found that, thank God for this relative who was dogged, the dear cousin in Jamaica, to go and do this genealogical digging and to find all of this um, information. Because the Caribbean, when you look at it, I, I don't know if Derek Walcott ever said this, but it just seems to me to really um, speak so much of memory and this history, you can kind of see it because you know that so many people went down there as they did in the Atlantic. So, so on that bright note, I just, I guess, I'll just, um, I'll stop talking. Does anybody have any questions or comments about anything at all? Anything? Anything? Yeah. I have a question. Mm. Um, first, I, I think I need to say condolence. I feel you lost somebody. Oh, thank you. And I just lost a sister last month. So oh, I'm sorry. Sir, I, I speak kind of loud. I don't need the uh, No, it's for taping. Oh, I'm sorry. That's right. The podcast. <clears throat> I was wondering, the, the prayers piece you talked about, it seems as if the prime minister, I'm not too caught up on the, the position, if you will, of the prime minister of Jamaica. Does his hatred funnel down to the people, the everyday people? And also, I'm wondering... Uh, the Russian uh, leader has a position on gay and human rights, and it affects the, the Olympics. I'm wondering, how can the tourism business try to do something about the homophobia there? I mean, are, is the hatred just directed towards Jamaicans, or I'm sure there are tons of gay cruises, package deals or whatever. Is there anything about the tourism industry in Jamaica can be done to help with the gay human rights situation. Okay, thank you very much um, for that. Uh, the first question, there's actually an essay in the book that I wrote in response to the previous Prime Minister, Bruce Golding, who is now 
not prime minister anymore. Now Portia Simpson Miller, the first woman prime minister in Jamaica, is in office. Uh, Bruce Golding, so at one point when I was in Jamaica in 2008, I was reading from my anthology, Our Caribbean, at a literary festival, and I felt that I really had to address some of Bruce's homophobic remarks that he'd made on the BBC. He'd made them only a few days before. And I said, well, I can't be in Jamaica with this book, Our Caribbean, Lesbian and Gay Writing Antilles, and not say something about this. It was a very scary moment, though. And that moment, I actually was prepared to be killed. I, I thought that I might be killed, actually, for saying that, because you don't know people come with guns and so on to f- festivals in Jamaica. It's not uncommon. And, uh, but it didn't happen. And so um, I wrote an essay out of that statement that um, I, I, I read to him. Um, because he had said that he didn't want gays and lesbians in his cabinet, right? And then, therefore, by extension, not in the country, essentially. And I wrote to him as his gay Jamaican son and said, well, I'm your child, if you will, you know, and so on. Portia, the present prime minister, and I was actually in Jamaica when she was elected in 2011, Portia has taken a much more progressive attitude, although we have yet to see what will happen. You see, it would be very, very dangerous for anyone, I think, really and truly, any person in their right mind in Jamaica today, in government, to be out. Uh, I mean, it might happen, but I just can't really quite see it at this point, but it could happen. But of course, how would they get a constituency? If you're a member of parliament and you are in the cabinet and you want to build a constituency in your particular area and you are openly gay, I don't think that, as they say in Jamaica, that can't work. We don't want Batman in government, you know, and all them something there. So they would say, no, so that can't work. Go back to America with your damn blasted nastiness and thing. So I think that um, it would be a problem. Hmm. Um, so we shall see what happened, yeah? But J Flag is actually petitioning and has been petitioning Parliament in Jamaica for years now to try to remove the buggery and the, uh, the, the Buggery Act and the Gross Indecency Act, which are British colonial laws from the 18th century. In fact, one of my cousins was prosecuted under the Gross Indecency Act in Jamaica in the 1980s, and this is the same law which prosecuted Oscar Wilde in Victorian England. So you see the connection, right? But I think that, yes, I mean, if the prime minister were to make a statement, pro, a pro-gay statement, as Portia did, but she's a woman, so it's a little... It's not taken quite as seriously. Yeah, she had a woman, you know, kind of thing. Um, I think it would make a big difference. But, you know, many people in Jamaica who adore, um, like whatever you think of this, they adore Barack Obama, and they were just jubilant when he was elected once and then twice, really took pause when all of these beloved black people whom they love, Barack Obama, Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela, have spoken out like, what, what's happening with all these black people? You know, I can't believe that they talk about Batman. You know, they're speaking supportively. So it's disturbing to a lot of Jamaicans, and it makes them think, I know, well, what can, you know, well, I have to disavow Desmond Tutu, and I have to disavow Nelson Mandela and, Bar- and Barack Obama. Um, as for the, the second question was about the uh, tourism. Yeah, that's been a question that a lot of people have asked, and I think that um, w- one of the things that always worries me is that the, the people who are the most vulnerable in Jamaica are the, the poorest people, obviously, and, and people who um, don't have resources of various kinds, right, who are impacted by, by homophobia and, and sexism and misogyny as well, all the things that couple together. And I think that um, the, the tourism thing is something a little bit different because the, the majority of the tourists to Jamaica at, in this moment in history are from North America. And... Um, 
they live in, when they go there, they mainly, not only, but mainly stay in what we call all-inclusive hotels. And many Jamaicans look upon them as, well, you know, if they're white people, for example, and many of the tourists, from what I've seen anyway, casual as a casual observer, are white people, but not exclusively. But they say, yeah, them white American people, you know, them do all kind of weird stuff, you know? So they're very dismissive in some ways, and they think, well, what do you expect from white people, except things like homosexuality and bestiality and drug use and mass murder and, you know, they, they murder their children, they shoot people in schools, what do you expect, you know? Look at the world they've created, right? This is what many people feel on a folk level, folk, folk culture level. And um, if a Jamaican is involved, especially a black Jamaican, is caught in, in homosexuality, that's a whole different thing. So the J-flag, this has been, a, a, throughout the Caribbean, this has been a debate about um, how can people who are in, interested in tourism development, etc., or involved in it, right? How can they work against homophobia in the Caribbean? Well, I think that really that interest and question would have to be taken to an organization like JFLAG or the local people working on the ground to let them lead the discussion and then go from there with the impetus because they are actually also very vulnerable, but they also know the, the ground very, very well, you know? I mean, it is, it is interesting. There are two beliefs that I thought were fascinating when um, Jay Falag and we were doing this tabulation of folk beliefs about homosexuality. So, you know, a lot of it is focused on male anal reality, A-N-A-L, right? So there's this whole belief that um, men, gay men can't swim. They'll drown because they'll take on water through their rectums, right? So Batman can't swim, you know, because they're going to take on water, right? Like, like, a, like a Titanic. And... Um, also that they can't eat porridge for the same reason because it would just go right through them, which I think is actually kind of funny in a way, the idea of such. But um, so you can't eat porridge because it will go through you, you know, because you have a big hole and thing, right? So, um, but, you know, you have to get through that kind of understanding as well, get away from all of this stuff. But, but the British brought a lot of this as well, the anal thing with the, the gross indecency and buggery law. Does that speak to your question? Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Sure. Yes, ma'am. Hi. Okay, see if I can get this right. In an interview a while ago, I think you spoke about the language that you expose yourself to in terms of popular culture and TV and being really protective of that inner music. And I was wondering how you do that. How I do, how I protect myself? Yes. As a writer, as a, as a writer I'm also really interested in kind of that protective oh, right. imagination. Well, you know how it is then, surely. It's, it's a very slippery slope, isn't it? Because on the one hand, you want to... Well, I'll speak for myself. I would like to hear many different languages. Like when I hear young people, older people, people from different social classes, cultures, and ethnicities speaking in particular ways that I'd like to try to internalize, to remember it for its immediacy and its locality in that culture and place. But at the same time, there's a lot that I want to try to excise from my way of speaking and writing. But like, you know, yeah, like it was so like, I don't know, but like whatever, that kind of thing that I think is really not very useful. And I tell my students, like when they say things, like when they're prone to say things in class, like, yeah, you know, it was like, and shit. I say, no, don't say that. That's actually quite lazy. It's not very interesting either because all it is, it's a profanity that doesn't really mean much. So what are you really trying to say? What's inside that, that the and shit is a shorthand for something else. I don't watch television either. I find it very, um, well, trite, a lot of it. Some of it is very good, I think, though. Some of it is wonderful, right? But some of it is, unfortunately, very stupid. So I try not to um, watch that. And I try to uh, just be very careful. I try to read a lot. I mean, when I used to dance as a ballet dancer, we did all the things that 
one had to do to maintain the equipment outside of dancing, so massages and uh, stretch therapy and all kinds of things, swimming, and you know you wouldn't go skiing and um, you wouldn't eat too much salt because your, your your muscles would I don't know would affect them. Well, you would you would have enough salt so that your muscles wouldn't cramp on you. And in the same way, by the same token, with writing, I try to do all the support work whenever possible to keep my brain really functioning. I use earplugs also a lot of the time to develop my concentration and my attention span. I am a little worried about what this might mean for me as I plan to get an iPhone because I, I feel like, I do feel a little sad about, um, and maybe I seem like an old fogey saying this, but I feel a little sad about, it seems as if we're living in a, I find myself increasingly aware of a world in which people are doing this all the time and it wasn't really the world I wanted to live in and it makes me a little sad, but one can't stop motion that goes forward, you know, but I thought, oh, gosh, is that what it comes to, technologies? I mean, is that what sort of, the great so-called first world has brought us, is this. But um, it's brought other things too, I suppose. But, and just lastly, I would say also that I try to spend a certain amount of time in Jamaica every year as well, particularly in Jamaica, because that's the language that I really want to keep abreast of all the time. And it's very mercurial. It's constantly changing. And even when I was writing something in a previous book, um, a story that took place entirely in Jamaica, I, I had to really think about writing the patwa on the page you know, and, and how that particular person from that part of Jamaica, small country enough, but in eastern Jamaica, the patwa is different than in central and western Jamaica. My people are from central Jamaica. So how would I write the patwa there? Or if I'm writing African-American language, and I would then say, okay, African-America is much too vast, so I have to focus on what I know, the northeast Bronx, right, and how those people speak with the yo, what's up, and all that kind of like intonation. And how to get some of that language, I mean, because, you know, some of it is very difficult, like the, like those, you know, like how do you get that on the page, you know, like, and actually my editor for the first book showed me that when I did readings from stories that had African-American characters saying things that would be punctuated by the, you know, I put it in, but it wasn't, and I sort of knew where it was supposed to be instinctively because I knew the language. That was fascinating because I didn't realize it, right? But it's things like that that one wants to get in um, integrity. Does that speak a little bit too? A couple more questions. Yes, of course. I was also going to ask you if there's a way, <clears throat> this is a leading question, is there a way that non-Jamaicans talk about transphobia and homophobia in Jamaica that vexes you? Is there a way that non-Jamaicans speak about, um, oh, I see what you mean. So is there a way that maybe there's a demonization that happens? Well, they're outsiders. Like, how do you feel? Is there a colonial gaze? Things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think some of the British people I've encountered, maybe, you know, the British don't really, by and large, they don't really know us still. They don't really know a lot of the colonial people. They, they know the Indians have good courage. I mean, I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't speak so categorically about British people. I mean, I don't want to be unfair to them either. But I think that there is a way, of course, like with many Americans, if you're at the seat of an empire, you don't have, you don't have to know about people. Like Romans didn't, didn't have to know about people in Carthage or whatever, you know. So um, I think that um, some British people... I've encountered, will say things, like one guy said to me, oh, this person's a middle-class Jamaican. I didn't realize that there were any. And um, I thought, oh, well, mm." you know, right. But um, I think that in in terms of homophobia and transphobia, well, it's it's very complicated, I think, because uh, Jamaica has a reputation that I think in many ways is, is earned. I mean, Time Magazine had something at one point about, and I think I was, the, the quote was attributed to me, which I did not say, that Jamaica was the most homophobic place on earth, and, uh, which I thought was ridiculous, because how do you quantify that, right? 
But I think that people do speak, of course, categorically. It seems to be part of the function of language to speak categorically. I do it as well. But I think that there's a way in which there are nuances which are often lost by people. Like, for example, the fact that there are many trans... Well, there was a trans murder recently in Jamaica, but there are many trans people living under particular conditions in Jamaica that are, who, who are accepted in that particular state. But it's not without very severe qualifications. And this is also true for many... LGBT, LGB people, right? So it, it really helps to know the nuances of the culture and the, the yeses and the noes. Um, I mean, I think that the other problem with Jamaica in particular is that, I mean, invariably, and I know people don't mean any harm by it, but invariably people of all colors will say, yeah, man, you know, Rasta man, or if I say that I have Jamaican, I have Jamaican background, get, get me a spliff, or, you know, Bob Marley, or, yeah, you know, reggae. That's all that they know, and that's part of the... Uh, the, popu- the popular image of Jamaica that's been put out there. And Jamaica itself has contributed to some of that by way of its tourist industry, you know, right? So it is a very complicated reality, how people speak about Jamaica, yeah. But this one what, a quick qualification to that. Caribbean people, though, um, in the region, that's a little bit different. Uh, well, people from the Anglophone Caribbean with whom we play cricket, they... Uh, <laughs> Just joking. But they, um, that's a little bit different because there's a little bit more of a cultural commonality. They understand, like Barbadians, as much as they might despise Jamaicans because we're not British enough and so on, and we're, not a, we're still a third world country and they're a second world country, you know, and they have great literacy and so on. Um, they, they do have an understanding of, of some of these factors as well because they also have a very similar Anglican church background and, and this whole British colonial thing, you know. Anything, anything else? From anyone? Question, comment, critique? So why do the English uh, stack their tins in a pyramid? Oh, it's all a bit of order, you know? It's all about order and shape and all that sort of thing. You've got to have it like that. That's how it is, you see. I don't know quite. No, but I, it's something about, I think it's something about um, this British thing about, to a certain degree, like public order. And, and this is my little theory. And knowing where everything is, is meant to be and where people are meant to be. Someone wrote an article in the New York Times magazine years ago about how perhaps the amount of surveillance that happens in London, because it's the most surveyed city in the world with cameras everywhere, would not work in the U.S. as well because in England there's a lot more anxiety about social class and are you supposed to be where you are, are you where you should be, who are you, why are you here kind of thing. Right, and so people are very conscious of public space, and I don't belong here, or I shouldn't be here, or dare I go there? It's an interesting idea, and I think that that thing, because you see it so much, has to do with tradition as well, and and um, and to show that we're not sloppy people, you know, like the Americans. I think of the Germans that way. Yeah, I could see that as well. Yes, in different ways, very right. much so. I Orderly, mean, well ordered. Yes. yes. Sometimes in very destructive ways, as we know. Right. Yeah. But I remember when my daughter went to um, to England to Derby to yeah. to do a semester abroad, and the first thing she wrote me was, she said, "Mom, I have never seen so many varieties of canned peas." Oh right. Yes, exactly. Mushy peas. Mushy. <laughs> yes, exactly. For, for fish and chips. And also, what's the other thing? Bubbles and squeak, which is the cabbage with the peas and the um, you know, all those kinds of lovely things. 
Yeah, overboiled. Yeah, so, I mean, no, it was a fascinating year. Um, I mean, I still go back. I was in Cambridge actually last week for a couple of days, and, um, and, and, but in London as well. And I was trying to reconcile the experience between those places because London is really the place that I know is my England, if you will, but it's not really... It's like New York is to the U.S. or Baltimore would be to the U.S., right? Not representative. Um, but I have to sort of make peace with and understand some of what I experienced in Cambridge, which I was trying to write about in this book because the swans are lovely, Right, and the bridges really that arch over the cam are beautiful, and all of that is really. It's, it, there's a beautiful elegance to the place as well that I find very, very seductive, um, but seductive in a kind of frightening way. Because I think it's sort of what happens to some people when they go to places like Harvard and Yale and Princeton. One can be seduced by the beauty of a place like that and the privilege, but then one can also be seduced into turning one's back on lots of other things. And I could be lulled into a kind of sensibility that I would find not attractive if I were, and not really human, not, not humane if I, if I were to, to succumb to that, you know? Yeah, so anything? Yes. You say that in general uh, Barack Obama is, is held pretty high in Jamaica. Um, yes, I think so. So my, my question is, what's so. the general feeling about Colin Powell? Oh, that's a good question. People are proud of him, I think. I mean, I think that people... I mean, I'm speaking, again, very generally, right? But I would say that people are very proud of him for being this very prominent figure affiliated with the U.S. government, very much, in fact, in the U.S. government and of Jamaican background, irrespective of what his politics might be or whatever he's done um, in other ways under the Bush administration and so on, you know? So people would see, first, he's a Jamaican, and that's all that counts. And then he's black, well, he's of African descent, and you know, and so on. And then he has lovely light skin. So yes, man, lovely, see, handsome man with a nice brown skin, my dear. I mean, so that's part of the equation as well, you know. Um, but um, but if he were a black man, people would I think would also say, you know, lovely black man, lovely you know skin. I mean, it just depends on on how handsome he is, according to general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hi, this is about writing in general. Life has a whole lot of situations it throws at you. So what choices, what makes you make certain choices to choose from to write about? What, what, how do I choose what to write about? All the things that get thrown at you, yes. Yeah, that's a really hard question, isn't it? How do I choose what to write about? You know, um... There's so much that I would like to write about, right? As you can well imagine, if you're a writer yourself, you know, there's so much that every day... Um, hmm. How do I, how do I um, answer that? I mean, like, this thing, this manuscript I wrote because I wanted to write something there about that. But there were other things that I wanted to write about as well. And in fact, while this book was being edited and going to press, there were things that rose up out of the Cambridge experience that then went into this book. I also feel that I really want to write a lot of nonfiction, well, essays, because I want to, even though people tell me I shouldn't, some people tell me I shouldn't because, um, because who cares? And uh, only write essays when you're really, really, really famous and established, like James Baldwin or um, some of the other writers whom I love. No one reads essays, blah, but I want to write them, you know, so I do. So that's a choice. But I also want to write fiction. I am working on fiction as well at the same time that I'm working on this. And this uses fictional techniques. Uh, but I, I feel a kind of conscientious a kind of sense of responsibility to write about particular things that I feel I, I can't let slip. Because I don't want to feel that something happened and I didn't remark on it. That I felt was something that I felt was repugnant, like bombing Iraq 
or droning Afghani people or um, any of these things that I think are really wretched and ugly, I want to say at least if I couldn't do something about it, at least I said no, that I don't subscribe to that, you know? Or sending Haitians en masse out of the U.S. and, you know, things like putting them in remanding camps and things like that. So many things to write about in that sense. But there's only so much time. So that's the thing, I think. And I also teach some of the time. So... And I have a life elsewhere as well. So that's, I think time also dictates to some degree what happens, you know. I mean, I'm very fortunate now that I teach only one term per year. So I have a lot more time to, I have like eight and a half months when I'm not teaching, when I can actually do a lot of writing work and so on. And I might be away again next year for a full year. So that gives me more choices in some ways, you know. Yeah. It's time, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yes, ma'am. Uh, Hi. Uh, what part of Africa it's believed from uh, the way the language has been passed down over say since the since the seventeenth century when Jamaican when well when black people when Africans began arriving there it's believed and I'll, I'll give you a little fun anecdote actually that many Jamaicans people who are Jamaicans today came from what is now known as Ghana right and one of the things that's fascinating about this fact is that i was in ghana in 2004 and i saw these two women on the road selling this pastry and i said stop 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 the car you know and i said what is that that you're selling and they said it's dukunu dukunu is what they call it and i said you're selling dukunu but we make dukunu right the exact same thing it's this pastry my grandmother used to make it one of my grandmothers like a cornmeal thing with raisins in it wrapped in banana leaves and it's boiled i think and um we never had a recipe for it. So they're selling dukunu 400 years later, right? Then many of the Ghanaian folk tales that use the Anansi character, A-N-A-N-S-I, are told in Jamaica, but the Ghanaian tales are more modern. So the Jamaican Anansi tales are earlier, centuries older, have derived from those earlier tales when people came from Africa, from West Africa, and carried those tales with them, right? But the folk hero, Anansi, the spider, who's always like the trickster, is the exact same character. And there are other things that we say in the Patwa that are, have been traced to parts of West Africa, but especially Ghana, like some of the, the, um, the way that we say things like dege dege, strege, reggae, um, uh, maga maga, the way that we use um, words to uh, repeat for stress, but even the ege thing, Creole linguists have actually done research on this to look at the, the kind of um, crossroads in the Caribbean of where a lot of these languages have come from in the, in the West African uh, curve. And some people might have come from other parts, maybe Central Africa as well. But definitely from the, from the what was, I think it was Dahomey, was what Ghana was called in the 17th, what Ghanaians, what we call Ghanaians today, called themselves in the 17th century. And, and of course, people began to be shipped from there, I think around 16, uh, maybe 1620, because the Spanish had Jamaica first, and then they lost the war with the English in 1655, and the English uh, came in there from that time. Yeah, speak to it. Yeah. Sure, yes, sir. Sure. What are some thoughts you have about where the attitude towards gays comes from? You mean in Jamaica? Uh, it, it, that's, it is very complex indeed, but um, there are lots of reasons, I think. Um, certainly um, a kind of, well, economic factors, because it's, it, attitudes vary. The ways in which homophobia is manifested in Jamaica, I think, I know, change across social class lines, right? Um, but I think that uh, certainly 
We have a lot of unresolved baggage about our bodies and what happened to us during slavery, rape and sexual predation. Especially as men, I think a lot of us haven't dealt with that fact, the fact that we were subjected to white slave owners' uh, sexual sexual, uh, predation upon our bodies. We haven't really wanted to deal with that that shame and that trauma. That's one thing. I think that um, there are particular strains of... um, fundamentalist religion, not so much in the Anglican Church, but in um, like Baptist, Seventh-day Adventist, very pocomania, very strict religions that do definitely, absolutely deplore homosexuality uh, because they interpret the Bible literally, right? And they also tend to believe more, they, rather they rely more on the Old Testament, which is, as you know, is a very, that's a very ferocious God in the Old Testament, right? It's not the forgiving Jesus of the New Testament and so on. So um, that's another thing. Then, as I said, economics have factored into a lot of things and the colonial relationship with the U.S. and the neo-colonial relationship with the United States, right? In very, very complicated ways. Jamaica is also just large enough as a country, I think, that it can support homophobic attitudes like that and the violence that, that accompanies them because you couldn't really go around chopping up people and burning people in their homes in a place like Barbados or St. Lucia, because those islands are too small. The kinships between people are very tight and concentrated across those islands. So if you go and kill Rodney in Jamestown in Barbados, then you might be killing Miss Agnes's son from so-and-so, or Miss, Miss Gwenny's grandson who blah, 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 that kind of thing. It's, there's, those are smaller places. And then Jamaica in general, I think, has a lot of issues with violence anyway. So the homophobia is just part of the violence. I mean, I, I tell a lot of people, a lot of people tell me, and I say the same thing, that I, in, when I'm in Jamaica, I'm more concerned about the general level of violence than I am about the homophobic violence. Because we can disguise ourselves in various ways sometimes, depending on how we present as queer, you know, um, but pass. But um, if somebody wants to rob you, or if they think that you have money, or they want to kill you, or for, for whatever reason, that's a harder thing to escape, right? And some of the violence is fueled by social class tensions because of the way that many people in the privileged classes treat their servants, right? Um, and many people can afford servants because of the um, exchange rate and because it's much cheaper to have a maid or a gardener there. So many people who chop up people with these big machettes, right, are gardeners, for example, who chop up the owners, right? Because maybe, who knows, the owner might have sexually abused the maid or the daughter or the this or the that or the... And you never know who knows who. So the person whom you're abusing or insulting could have a gunman for a cousin or a don man for an uncle or you just don't know and come and shoot you and so on. Right? happens a lot. But we still love it anyway. (laughs) Yeah. Yes. (laughs) Thank you very much, Judy. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. And if you want to get a book, I'll be happy to sign one.